Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Certainly some of the policies he's implemented would be the kind you'd expect from a communist government, like his censorship bill, which would allow the CRTC to control what Canadians see and say on the internet. He passed the Emergencies Act to allow the authorities to look into people, freeze people's bank accounts. Um, so he has a long track record of supporting these kinds of authoritarian actions against our freedoms. So that had to do with Mr. Polyev challenging Mr. Trudeau's approach to uh, Beijing, to China, and uh, as China continues its interference in this country. I mean, I don't think they've just shut everything down in the last few days and said, well, they're on to us now. We'd better stop. And there have been developments uh, this week or this past week, you know, in, uh, in Parliament, the Parliamentary Committees, the PROC Committee, Procedure and House Public Affairs Committee, and the Ethics Committee, both of them, both of them want to have Katie Telford to the uh, Chief of Staff for Mr. Trudeau, testify. The Liberals are filibustering whenever it gets to that point, and uh, they won't let it come to a vote. But they have, at least Proc has, uh, passed a motion for a public inquiry, and the Prime Minister has said, no, we don't need a public inquiry, but we will put in place a rapporteur, and if the rapporteur says a public inquiry is required, then probably we'll do it. I'm paraphrasing Mr. Trudeau, of course, because he won't talk to me. I can't quote him in a conversation with me, because that has not happened in all the years he's been either the leader of the Liberal Party or the Prime Minister. No other Prime Minister since I've been in radio has refused, has avoided, has circumvented being on the air with me. But this Prime Minister has and does. But we have Sam Cooper. And you know that I'm a huge fan of Mr. Cooper's investigative journalist at uh, Global News, Willful Blindness, is Sam's book, which is just an absolutely stunning read. And um, you just, you can't put the book down, Willful Blindness, How a Network of Narcos, Tycoons, and CCP Agents Infiltrated the West. How are you, Sam? I'm fine, Roy. Thanks for having me. It's always great to have you on the show. Thanks for giving us of your Sunday. Um, the Developments this week in the China interference in Canada elections issue Include your global news story, and it was an amazing read. Two high-level memos allege Beijing covertly funded Canadian election candidates. Uh, intelligence warnings. Chinese government officials were funneling money to Canadian political candidates. Can you can you uh, bring us up to date on that? Yes, Roy. As you as you know, we've been breaking uh, exclusive stories since last November. Sometimes citing. Uh, intelligence sources with awareness of these investigations into uh, interference in 2019 and 2021 from Chinese intelligence officials in Toronto. What we could do in this most recent report is cite actual documents, as you say, high-level documents uh, prepared for, for and provided for senior Trudeau government officials. And uh, the, the, the most uh, stunning allegation really that that uh, in, in my assessment underwrites a lot of uh, the reporting and really boils down and summarizes what 100 CSIS investigations uh, reported up to the Privy Council office, which is the uh, office that is mandated to warn our prime minister about serious national, national security issues. 
I'll read you the quote, Roy, that, uh, that I'm talking about. Quote, a large clandestine transfer of funds earmarked for the federal election from the People's Republic of China consulate in Toronto was transferred to an elected provincial government official via a staff member of a 2019 federal candidate. This January, end quote, the January 22 report for our prime minister and his top aides and ministers says. So what does that mean? Uh, this, this, uh, the Privy Council office doesn't report uh, statements like that uh, loosely. This is, again, uh, the document I reviewed said intelligence boiled down from 100 thesis reports, a number of them, according to sources with awareness, focusing on this Toronto election interference network. So that documentation, uh, again, this is what we call in investigative journalism, something that points towards, you know, when did the Trudeau government know and what did they know about election interference? This document says they were told China transferred funds into an election interference network and a provincial government official allegedly is an intermediary in the transaction. So I'll stop there. But uh I, and every time I read that quote that I reviewed, Roy, I can't, uh, I can't, I, I almost can't fathom how explosive the information is. You know, as you were speaking, Sam, I thought, I wonder how Sam feels when he's reading these reports, when these things, when these reports arrive in front of you and you're reading it. It must be stunning to look at and see what's going on and what's been going on and how uh, developed this network is and this methodology of interfering in our in our domestic affairs, including our federal elections in Canada, it must be absolutely mind-boggling. It's it's mind-boggling, and Roy, I, I I'm kind of happy that you put it that way because it it is weighty stuff, but it it doesn't come lightly, and it doesn't come by accident. You know, uh, the people that I've been in contact with realized that I wrote a book on this subject. They, as I uh, was, uh, are alarmed that organized crime is is deeply connected to these operations, whether we're talking about police stations, uh, whether we're talking about clandestine cash transfers, whether we're talking about underground casinos, which may be used to uh, in ways by Chinese intelligence and organized crime to associate with Canadian politicians. Roy, this information that I, I have reported on recently, and now we've seen the Globe and Mail, uh, also some stunning reports, uh, came to me because I've been studying this file uh, for years, and not, not this file alone. <laughs> I, I look at many different countries and issues, but I, I and others have come to the assessment that China poses the greatest threat uh, to Canada's national security. Yeah, and you know, Sam, uh, we're so grateful to have you, so we're so lucky to have you, that you have this credibility with people, and they will, and they trust you, and they know they can trust you, and they provide you with the information that you then share with us. And as I'm reading your information or, or watching you and uh, hearing you speak, I, ha I always have the same thought. For any government to have the temerity to stand up and say, we didn't know, it's, it's absolutely stunning to me because if you, if you have all of this in front of you and you're showing them this is what I, what I have, and they're saying we didn't know, then I don't want to be rude here, but they have to be unbelievably stupid. Um, you, you, you can't have this kind of information. Uh, you can't have these things happening in your country. And if you're the government that's, 
that's running the country, managing the affairs of the people of the country, it's your responsibility to know. And yet here we are, and we're, we are where we are. I mean, that's such a, <laughs> it's such a throwaway phrase, but it's, but it's true. Um, so, so the question, Sam, really does become again, what did the feds know uh, about this? And how seriously did the Trudeau government treat the warnings? And, and when did they know? That's that comes back to those questions, doesn't it? It does. And a process of our reporting has been uh, tracking back the memos, uh, the warnings and what sources say about repeated high level briefings to uh, the prime minister's office's senior aides. Roy, we reported on a, a two, 2017 memo that was requested, according to the document I reviewed by the prime minister's chief aide, Katie Telford. And again, this this memo prepared for the prime minister in uh, it is the headline of it. Uh, according to the memo I reviewed, it again this this document said that China. Uh, it's well known that China Chinese espionage targets Canadian politicians and bureaucrats. Uh, China is supporting Canadians running for office. Many different allegations in that 2017 memo that are very supportive of all this other intelligence I'm reporting on. And uh, uh, that story that I'm talking about had a quote, essentially, from an official that said, oh, I'll read it. I have it here. Quote, the floodgates have been opened in the last five years. There has been ample evidence placed in front of the Liberal Party of Canada, and they have done essentially nothing. End quote. So this would be from a person uh, that that we could call a patriot of Canada that is very concerned, as many are in Canadian intelligence, about what will happen in future elections. And you you, you raised a good question. You know, if intelligence is in front of this government, why don't they act on it? Roy, uh, if you're following, you know, the commentary, some people are pushing back and saying, hey, this is intelligence. It's not proven in court. Uh, fair enough. But there are a number of issues there. I mean, our international allies would say that if Canada took three years of heel dragging to to put a ban on Huawei 5G, while our other allies went ahead and, and made, uh, you know, new intelligence sharing partnerships between themselves that excluded Canada, any way you look at it, Canada is not paying attention in a timely way to the same intelligence that our allies are. That's just very clear. Yeah. And and just thinking about the two scientists with ties to China who were escorted, Sam, from the Winnipeg Biosecurity Lab almost four years ago. But we still have no report from the RCMP as the Mounties continue their investigation. Four years just seems like a very long time for this investigation to continue. You just run up against these particular situations one after another after another as you follow this, uh, this, this bouncing ball, as it were, and your reporting is absolutely, well, I've said it so many times, you know I'm a big fan, is absolutely stellar. Um, Sam, there was another story this week about the Ontario PC MPP, Vincent Ka, who stepped away from the Doug Ford government Sitting as an independent after intelligence reports suggested that Mr. Ko was involved with an election interference network in Canada directed by China's consulate in Toronto. So here we are again, the, the, the consulate in Toronto back in the, in the picture. What was going on between the consulate in Toronto and the election candidates that Beijing approved? The, the intelligence we reported on, and in this case, refers again directly to that quote I, I, I mentioned about the, the consulate transferred a, a large, significant transfer of funds to interfere in the 2019 election 
to, quote, an elected provincial government official via a staff member of a 2019 federal candidate. So sources with knowledge of this intelligence and investigation say that Mr. Kut allegedly is the official that uh, received about $50,000 from the consulate. But before that, uh, a a community network allegedly involving a pro-Beijing Toronto businessman was uh, another middleman or intermediary that received in one transfer about $250,000, provided those funds to the 2019 federal candidate staff member, who then allegedly transferred $50,000 to Mr. Ku as part of this election interference. Now, Roy, uh, we need to say Mr. Ku strongly denies the allegations. His lawyer, uh, a former Doug Ford uh, lawyer named Gavin Tai. Uh, has has called uh, the allegations in our report defamatory and false. So uh, we are waiting uh, uh, to hear more from this group. But uh, we have the intelligence sources that say Mr. Ku is uh, a middleman in these alleged transactions. And uh, the what happened to these funds, again, uh, we, we do not know. But according to the documents and intelligence, this large transfer occurred. And you asked what was going on. It's very important to stress that a number of intelligence documents we have uh, we have reported on say that China's interference networks involve uh, a wide range of actors, key being intelligence officials in Chinese consulates in Canada, and then purported community leaders who are used as uh, fronts or insulation proxies to obscure the flow of funds and communication to the candidates which Beijing favors or wants to use in their schemes. And another very important part is so-called, or rather, quote, co-opted political staff who uh, act as intermediaries with funds, act as uh, purveyors of information to and from the candidates back and forth to the consulate officials. So allegedly, according to CSIS, this is how China's very sophisticated interference works. And Roy, a key point here, there's no party lines for Beijing. They are targeting candidates at all levels of government, in all parties, uh, seeking to use Canada's politicians to their ends. They don't care if you're liberal, conservative, NDP, or another party. My intelligence, uh, my sources, my documents say all politicians, all parties, all levels are targeted. I'm amazed that you're able to keep all of this um, so ordered, Simon, that you can describe to us uh, sequentially, uh, in, in, as you do, what the situation is like and what's going on. So where do we stand? Let me ask you the the, the layperson's question here, even though I'm, I'm not, but it's, it's the question that I need answered for my, for my own sake. Where do we stand now on this entire investigation? Where are we? Well, uh, uh, where we stand for Ottawa is, uh, Roy, we identified in our November 7th, 2022 first report that started breaking these stories. Canada lacks uh, measures such as a foreign agent registry. And in, indeed, uh, Kenny Chu, who you've had on your show, was attacked allegedly in Chinese intelligence operations in 2021 for suggesting a foreign agent registry. Now we have the government stepping forward saying they are now consulting the public and uh, according to my sources 
look, uh, the public safety and the Department of Justice already has this law ready to go. So I think that you can put take that to the bank. We will have a registry. Uh, many more laws are needed that, that our allies in Australia and the United Kingdom, United States uh, have on this, uh, this uh, matter, which let's stress again, this is not about the nation. Uh, this is not about Chinese people. It's about the Chinese Communist Party. Also, Russia, Iran, other countries very active in Canada's democracy. We know this. Where does my investigation go or global news? Uh, this is a developing story with, uh, with how uh, Premier Doug Ford and his government will respond to these serious allegations. We've already seen some movement there. There are other people surrounding or at least one person surrounding Mr. Cook. That, uh, that, that we continue to uh, investigate uh, in terms of this alleged transaction. There are uh, at least 11 MPs uh, allegedly involved in the 2019 Toronto area, uh, you know, schemes. And Roy, my, my sourcing and my colleagues sourcing is this is politicians, many across Canada, implicated specifically in China's interference, uh, some of them winning. Uh, many probably unwitting. Right. So, you know, uh, it's not just our investigations. Canada needs an education program yeah. for our political system, recognizing when foreign powers are are using or donating with strings attached Sam, to our politicians. I, I have to thank you. Uh, I want to thank you for coming on the program as frequently as you do and informing us of what's going on uh, as only you can. You and Global News are doing incredible work. And this is what Canadians need to know about, and you're providing the information. Well, that was a story that uh, happened in, uh, in Toronto last week, and it really caught my attention. In fact, the headline caught my attention specifically. Six schools threatened with gun violence. Six schools threatened with gun violence last week. How's that happen? When did schools become a target? I know we have answers. We, we, we statistically can point to this situation and that situation, and we can say this criminal act took place in a school and, and children died, and there are horrific stories. But why? How did that happen? Michael Zweigstra is a high school teacher in Manitoba. He's the author of What's Wrong With Our Schools and How We Can Fix Them, He's an op-ed writer, including one he wrote in December of 22 for the Fraser Institute. The headline was, More School Choices Would Help Ontario Families Flee Unsafe Schools. It's not just Ontario. It's happening across the country. And I'm curious whether it's mostly in urban areas or not. It's the easiest, probably the easiest deduction is, well, it happens where there are more people. And maybe that's the case. Michael Zweigstra joins us. Michael, you and I have talked for years about the issues that are confronted by our students, our teachers, the issues of education, what has to be accomplished, what our objectives are. But increasingly, paralleling those discussions have been the very sad stories, the criminal stories of violence in our schools. I'm not talking just about bullying, and I'm not trying to minimize the impact of bullying when I say just about bullying. Some of the bullying stories we've heard on this program have been absolutely heart-wrenching. But parallel to the education stories have been the violence stories. And this story, this headline 
about six schools in the Toronto area being threatened with gun violence, that to me crossed, just crossed the, the barrier. Well, absolutely. And I think it's important to, uh, uh, to note here that uh, violence, when it gets to that level, you know, when you have serious physical violence and the threat of gun violence, that takes us to the point where it can't be ignored. And that's, of course, when it hits the news. Uh, but, but it's important to consider that, uh, uh, that it doesn't just start there, that issues when you have concerns about violence and altercations and all that, uh, typically that's the type of thing that, uh, that escalates. And uh, so uh, these stories you know, are the most extreme, um, but uh, there's a lot of things that happen prior to it reaching this point that doesn't get as that doesn't get as much attention but i agree with you that it is obviously very concerning and uh, something does need to be done i can't imagine what it would be like for the the staff the teachers the students in those schools the schools were named what's it like for yep. the parents whose children go to those schools what's it like for the kids who go to those schools it's it, it it's it's horrific and we're no longer at the point Michael, where we say, or might be inclined to say, oh, it's just somebody showing off, it's just somebody being an idiot and uh, turning our backs on the situation. There have been far too many violent incidents, far too many school shootings for us to turn our backs on, an, on a statement like this or a headline like this. Police don't turn their backs. Police are there in, in, in force. Uh, over the ensuing days at those schools, and that's of some comfort, I'm sure, to the staff, the students, and the parents. But we cannot turn our backs on this. This is, this is very serious business. What's it like to be, I mean, I'm sure you've talked to your colleagues. I don't know if it's happened in your school. But what's it like to be in a school environment when violence of, of, of that level is threatened? Well, it's obviously, it's obviously very serious and very concerning. And, you know, teachers are human as well and uh, certainly do feel uh, the impact of that. I mean, everyone wants to be able to uh, go to work safely and return home safely. And when uh, when things escalate to that point, then obviously that becomes very stressful for everyone involved, both teachers and students. And, uh, you know, one of the the uh, cases that I wrote about in the op ed for the Fraser Institute that was published in the Financial Post uh, was simply uh, summarizing some of the information available in mainstream media about serious cases of uh, ongoing violence in some Toronto area schools uh, where you had uh, in one case you had uh, at one high school, you had 14 staff members that refused to go to work on a particular day, citing unsafe working conditions because of all the violent assaults, drug deals, and near daily fights that were taking place. And uh, in fact, there was even in that school, there was even a, a, a jump list that was being circulated, which of course is a list of people targeted for attack. That obviously is, a, is, is an extreme case, um, but that is an example of a situation where you have ongoing problems, not simply one day or one person you know, calls in a threat and then police respond, but rather where you have many days, weeks, and months where you have incidents to the point where uh, where staff members don't want to go to work, and uh, that obviously uh, you know you, you can't have any. There's no learning happening when everyone feels unsafe. I mean, no, if you don't feel safe. No, in I school, can't imagine. No one can teach. No one can learn. Who bears responsibilities? Is it society? Is it uh, permissive attitudes? Poor school board management? Um, who bears responsibility for the fundamentals of this? Well, the simple answer is that the responsibility is borne in a lot of by a lot of different uh, areas. I mean, obviously, you know, we can always point to society, uh, but I would, I would, I would, if I had to zero it down, 
you know, the administration of schools, the administrators, and I'm talking about like, you know, the school board superintendents, and then the principals and vice principals who run the school, uh, they have control over the policies of the school. They are the ones who decide, you know, how do we deal with uh, altercations and violence? Um, do we uh, do we take a more uh, assertive approach where we deal directly with problems and where we're willing to remove students who who are violent for you know, and do that for a period of time, or are we taking a more permissive approach? Uh, where we want you know to reduce you know to not have student suspensions and to so do everything we can to keep them in the building even when it makes other people feel unsafe. So the philosophy that an administrator uh, brings in has a huge impact of the culture of a school. So uh, the, and and I would also say school boards have a lot of responsibility. I mean, as, as a case in point, you have school boards such as the Toronto District School Board that removed their school officer resource program that took that out where you had police officers. You used to have police yeah. officers in school, not just when a crime had been committed, but rather in school on a regular basis, building relationship students and helping um, just provide support. And you've got these woke school trustees that in places like Toronto that are saying, no, we've got to defund the police. We need to take the police out. And so now the only time police come in is when there's an actual crime that happens. And uh, I just view that as very, very short-sighted. I go back to the headline, six schools in Ontario threatened with gun violence. Gun violence. You know, fist fights. I mean, when I was in high school, a couple of guys would have a disagreement over something or other, and uh, you'd meet behind the curling club, and there'd be a couple of uh, lefts and rights thrown, and then when it was over, it was over, and everybody walked away. But we're talking about, the headline is, Six Schools in Ontario Threatened with Gun Violence. Uh, let's take some calls, uh, Michael, and please just jump in uh, when we're talking to our callers, and if you hear them say something that you want to respond to, please do so. Jeff is in Edmonton. Sure. Jeff, thank you for the call. Uh, my wife works at a high school here in Edmonton, and they've had a, I, I believe they're called SROs, or a, a, a police uh, representative on site for years. And I believe it was two years ago that was removed. I don't know if it was budgetary or considered uh, there was some other reason, uh, primarily due to the school superintendent. But the rate of crime and uh, happenings that have gone at school have increased incrementally. And I know all the staff at the school would yearn to have this police officer back on site, but there's no sight of that happening in the near future. And I agree with uh, your your guest that it was the superintendent and the administration that made that decision. But at the ground level, it is desperately needed. The ethnical battlings are getting out of control. Let me just jump in here for a second and ask you this question. Was there a sense that there was a relationship that was built between the police officer and the students, that they actually got to know each other, and there was a level of trust between the officer and the students which made the environment more positive? Very much so, from from what I've heard from my wife for years, was that the the police officer, and they've had a couple over the years, became very engaged in the students and the community, and of course the 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 do-no-gooders don't care, but to a large extent, yes, very much so. Uh, Michael, yeah, I totally agree with your uh, uh, with the caller here. I it it just baffles. Uh, it's just baffling that uh, that school boards are choosing to remove these uh, police officers, the school resource officers, uh, from schools. Uh, they uh, provide uh, important support. Uh, it's a great opportunity for students 
to build relationships with police officers. Um, you shouldn't. The only time you see a police officer shouldn't be when you're being arrested for a crime. You should you should be building with relationships with police officers early on and seeing them as uh, as regular people. And well, so, so to so. have a police officer within the school providing support and yes, able to deal with you know bigger issues as they arise. Uh, those are all very good reasons to have police officers uh, in schools, and uh, it's very unfortunate when uh, superintendents are taking them out. And it's, uh, uh, I, I think it's, uh, it's misguided, and the evidence shows that. Michael, is this a consensus view? If I were to go to schools across the country, and I were to ask staff, teachers, whoever is involved, the adults in the school, if they were comfortable with the idea, if they supported a police officer being in the school during the school day. Would I get that response from a majority of people or never mind a majority, I'm, I'm pretty, almost I'm unanimously? Sure you, would. You, you may not get that response from a majority of administrators who are farther removed from the realities of uh, in the ground, in the classroom. Mm. Uh, but I, obviously, I know many teachers who are fully supportive of having police officers okay. in school. And I will say not all school boards have taken them out. I mean, uh, Winnipeg has several different school boards. It's a little different that way. And some of the the school boards have taken the police officers out. Some have kept them in. So this is a decision that ultimately can be made by trustees. And so if, if, if listeners want to make a difference on this, it's ultimately the trustee who makes the final decision on matters of policy right. such as this. And so if you want police officers back in schools and they've been taken out, lobby your local trustee. They are elected. They are supposed to listen to you. Okay, I'm going to get another call. If, on... if I may. Yeah, go ahead, Jeff. With, with the lack of that uh, role in a school, it then falls upon teachers who are ill-equipped and don't have time, are underpaid or uneducated, whatever. They're not They're not equipped to deal with this kind of thing that the police otherwise would be better off. Was it? Is it? Uh, is it more difficult for your wife as a teacher in the teaching environment without the police officer's presence? Uh, I would say it is indeed, because when there's something that happens at the school, you're calling upon the nearest, as a rule, I'm sorry, the nearest male, uh, of, 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 of authority, be it a principal, a vice principal, or a teacher. And no one wants to be put in that position. That's not what they're, that's okay. not what they've been hired for. That's not their job. All right, Jeff, I appreciate the call from Edmonton. I do have an email from uh, Blair in Edmonton. Blair writes for Edmonton, it was the Board of Trustees, not the superintendent, as far as removing the uh, the police officer from the school is concerned. In Vancouver, Mark, Mark, what's your what's your take on all of this violence in schools? Uh, well, I mean, it's it, it's terrible. Um, the reason I'm calling in, though, is I've got to take issue with something his guest said earlier. He made a bit of a derisive comment in terms of you know the woke people wanting to take uh, police out of the classroom, and he, I mean, he's not an uneducated man, but it sounds like to me he's really missing the point of of what that is. So. When we talk about defunding the police, it's not simply only removing police services. It's about changing police services to bring in... The we're talking about violence in schools, Mark. We're talking about violence in schools. So let's yeah, stay no. on that. Let's stay on, on focus, focus on this because we only have a minute. So if we're talking about violence in schools, we have to ask, why is the violence happening? And what do we need to do to prevent the violence from happening? And it's not necessarily having police officers in schools. It's a much bigger question that gets down to yeah. um, okay. having the right Okay. Let me just bring Michael in on this. Don't go Don't go anywhere, Mark, but I want to bring Michael in on this because we only have a minute. Michael, you're being challenged on this. 
Yeah, I, 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 I would just simply argue that, uh, you know, what having police officers in schools do, and they're not needed in every school, in every context, um, but they can provide much needed support and uh, uh, and uh, in dealing with issues immediately as they arise. It's not the it's not the final it's not the ultimate, you know, like w- solution for everything in terms of obviously there's broader societal issues. But the, the, the implication here that we have to fix all of society's problems and eliminate child poverty completely before we can deal with violence in schools, uh, that, that just simply makes this, uh, this this an impossible goal to achieve. And as far as defunding police, I mean, when you defund, you reduce funding. So whatever word games you want to play, if you're cutting funding to them, one of the first things that tends to get cut are things like school resource officer programs. And so um, obviously, right. I'm not in favor of defunding police or of cutting their funding. We have, I, I think we have literally more. 20 seconds. Uh, final comment to you, Mark. Real quick. Okay, so Real quick. defunding police doesn't mean to have we, re- we need to reduce services. Uh, the other issue is that it's about getting right police in the school. Bail is a constitutional right, but it is not absolute. Our laws are clear that they can that bail can be denied where there is just cause, when it is necessary for the safety of the public or to maintain the public's confidence in the administration of justice. That's David Lametti, by the way, the federal justice minister. Bail is a constitutional right. But the question is, should bail be as readily available as it's proven to be? And all we have to do is think about uh, OPP Constable Greg Pierce-Challa, who was shot and killed in December, by an individual, allegedly shot and killed by an individual out on bail, who had initially been denied bail on an assault and weapons charge. My good friend Scott Newark, former Crown Attorney in Alberta, former Executive Director of the Canadian Police Association, was an advisor, senior advisor to a public safety minister nationally, and has uh, worked with victims groups in this country for many years. Scott introduced me to the whole debate on bail when I started doing this program in the early 90s. And I've said many times what I've learned about the justice system, I've learned from Mr. Newark. And he's back with us. And, and Scott, on the issue of bail, what was, it, what was it we were debating about bail in the early 90s? Was it the same issue as it is now, too easy for, for some to get bail? Or was it something different? Uh, it was different in the sense that um, the it was only one part of the larger problem, and the larger problem was how our system was dealing or not dealing with uh, repeat offenders, because a defining yeah, right. feature of our right. criminal justice system, Roy, as you and I have discussed for decades, is that a disproportionately small number of offenders are responsible for a disproportionately large volume of crimes. And a one-size-fits-all approach does not work. But it applies to more than bail. It's also about uh, parole. It's about how police uh, uh, organize themselves in dealing, you know, with the repeat offenders, how uh, funding is actually allocated. And those are issues that have come up over the years. And I agree with you that the uh, recent uh, uh, killings, uh, by people who are career criminals um, has raised this issue to the extent that I don't know that I've, I can recall ever seeing a situation where all of the premiers of all of the provinces and territories collectively write a letter demanding a meeting with the federal government to start the discussion. Yeah, that's true. That's it, true. It really is, a rep- and I, it gives me some degree of optimism 
and I watched the, uh, the, uh, the press conference after the meeting, and I have been in touch with a lot of people in a lot of different provinces, including ministers, to, to make that point that this is not just about bail. It's a more complex subject. You know, bail, the, the bail provisions that the, the minister was talking about, and other provincial people, is Section 515 of the Criminal Code, but there's a lot more that's there. It's about how we need to take steps to improve the way we deal with repeat offenders and not let our bail system simply be a catch-and-release process. So we do want bail to be part of the justice process. We want that. That has to be. And we know there are people in Canada's prisons who are there for crimes they did not commit. We know that. And I've spoken to a number of them on this program. Well, all it takes is one. They do exist, and that is something that we must address. Yeah, we we have to make sure that there is opportunity for a person to... It's not the get-out-of-jail-free card, but it's an opportunity to not be confined if bail conditions are met. It's all about defining what, what bail is. Well, so, so let me, let, hold, hold on, Scott, hold, 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 on, hold on a sec. So Mr. Lametti insists that he has confidence in the bail system. Um, I want to go back to this question, and you can answer this better than most. What is the intent of bail? Well, it's a balancing of interests, and, and frankly, it's just part of our criminal justice system um, that is guided by the same principles. It's a balancing of interests, including people's civil rights, but also including, and they are specifically noted in the, uh, the legislation, that the court is entitled, and indeed uh, it reaches the point potentially of obligation, to deny someone bail if there are legitimate concerns that they won't okay. show up in okay. court. Okay, so let me ask you to put on your Crown Prosecutor's hat right. for just a minute. So when you're in court and you're dealing with someone who's been charged and that person has a record, or let me, let me just remove that last part. When you're dealing with someone who's been charged and that person appeals for, applies for bail, and the Supreme Court, and we have to bring this forward to 2023 because the Supreme Court declared bail is a fundamental right. Um, what does Scott New York do? What does Scott New York say? What parameters does Scott New York apply as the Crown Attorney in establishing whether or not the Crown is going to agree with bail for the individual who's applying for it? Um, I would use the principles that have guided our uh, criminal justice system for centuries. And the essence of that is this offender this offense. One size does not fit all. So does this person have a history of criminal violence? Mm-hmm. That changes the determinations and the considerations of what needs, needs to be made. Has this person got a history of not showing up or violating the conditions of their release? Okay, and oh, by the way, there are fundamental flaws in the way we can even determine if I'm sitting as the Crown Attorney uh, or being able to tell a judge what has actually happened. Because our system, our laws are so badly written that it's not, although it's a crime to breach the conditions of release of your bail or your probation or a peace bond or conditional sentence, right? It's all in the criminal code. Guess what? If you're released on parole or statutory release and you breach your conditions, that's not a crime. So it doesn't show up in the criminal record. So if I'm standing there in court and I'm looking at this 
And I see a guy with a long record, but I can't tell if, you know, he's also committed those crimes while he was on early release. Then the judge doesn't know. I realized that when I was a Crown in the early days, and I figured out a way to actually, you know, do an analysis of it, and I used to, you know, specify that. But to this day, we still don't have a law that changes that. I'm very pleased to tell you that last Friday, a uh, conservative MP named Pierre Palus from Quebec introduced a bill, uh, C-325, that would change that so as to make it a requirement that that be reported and to change the law so that it's a crime to breach your conditions, okay. which is a great idea. Yeah. So I did a program inside Joyceville Prison. Now, this goes back uh, to the early 90s. We went into the prison and we did a, a call-in segment where the inmates committee, and we had individuals who were convicted of murder, we had bank robbers, we had drug dealers, we had uh, the inmates committee members. And I thought they, they, they did an, actually, an excellent job communicating with our callers. So after the show, uh, the engineers are taking down the equipment, and I was talking to the uh, deputy warden, and the deputy warden said to me, you know, Roy, tomorrow is release day. Yeah. And he said, I'm going to have to release a number of individuals from this prison tomorrow, and I know they're coming back, and I know they're going to be coming back for worse crimes. He said, but I know there are also individuals in this prison I will not be releasing tomorrow, and I will probably never be releasing, but if we did, we would never hear from them again. And I remember thinking, how dysfunctional is that? Yeah. Well, we've had a similar experience. Um, I've encountered cases, both as a prosecutor and in my days with the police association and the Ontario government, uh, on individual cases, and I learned from, I, I got very good insights, and by the way, I was tipped off to it by good people inside Correctional Service of Canada, to the culture inside Correctional Service of Canada, which frontline officers once described as GTO, get them out, and KTO, mm-hmm. keep them out. And it's exactly that cultural attitude that you just described in your uh, encounters and that's a significant yeah. problem. Yeah. Uh, we, we identified that uh, years ago, back around 2000. So, we made some changes to it, but it's something that remains today, and we need to do a better job through things like electronic monitoring of dealing with higher-risk offenders so that we are able to detect if they're in breach of their conditions and not wait till somebody new is victimized. So what we need, we need a bail system that is responsive to the needs of society, and is responsive to what the justice system puts in place, and a, an individual who is going to be, I'll use the word responsible, and live up to the conditions of bail. Scott, I'm going to b- sort of bounce around here a little bit with, with what I'm talking to you about. One of the issues that has been brought forward over the last couple of weeks, particularly, and last week I heard it quite a few times, reverse onus. So speak to that, please. Sure. All that is is an existing uh, condition that in defined circumstances, the obligation, which is normally on the Crown to show that, as you, as you specified, normally on the Crown to show that there are grounds that the person should be detained, there are some circumstances um, where it, it, it's in reverse, so that if it's somebody you know, charged with defined uh, kinds of offenses or uh, things like that, that's what changes. And that's using the existing sort of structure, if you will, of the bail system to modify it to deal with this. But as I mentioned at the outset, 
this is way more complex than simply dealing with bail. And it was it was funny because I hated to admit that I told people when the when this first hit the news, the the federal attorney general David Lametti was saying, "Look, this is more complex than just amending the section of the criminal code." And I had to tell people, I said, "Actually, uh, I hate to say this, but he's right." Okay, we. Provinces have responsibility under Section 9213 of our Constitution for the administration of justice. That means they're the ones that decide, for example, how police organizations or uh, uh, supervision organizations are funded, how they're organized. Give you an example. When I was with the uh, Ontario government, saw the, we saw the expansion of uh, what you'll see it in the news sometimes, dealing with repeat offenders called the Rope Squad. It was uh, uh, organized originally by the Toronto Police Service. Rope stands for Repeat Offender Parole Enforcement, and the OPP joined it. And it was a recognition that targeting those repeat offenders, whether it was on bail or on parole or whatever it was, that was a force multiplier, and it had huge effects. I think what we should be looking at in some of these cases is, do all provinces have this? I've seen just in the last uh, couple of months, actually, Calgary and uh, Alberta generally is moving towards this increasingly. So is British Columbia. Okay, like, those are things that need to be addressed. They also need so, to say, like, are we using all the tools we actually have? Yes, we yeah, can change yeah. the legislation, but there's way more that needs to be done. So is the justice system, let's expand this beyond bail then, because that's what you're doing, and, and I... I can't uh, disagree with that because we look at it from the from 30,000 feet up and look at the system uh, as it is. You remember we spoke with the then assistant attorney general for the state of Washington, Doug Walsh. Yes. He was on the program with us in the early 90s. I'll never forget Doug Walsh because he said, if people don't believe your justice system, believe in your justice system, you don't have a justice system. Yeah. That's, that was truer words were never spoken. Is the justice system that we have in Canada now stepping beyond just bail? Is it, is it failing its objectives? Is it failing to properly meet its requirements? Well, I think, let me, let me put it this way, because I've experienced this over the past uh, decades. I think um, these kinds of cases that we're talking about, where you're dealing with people who have been convicted of crime and released over and over and over again, people look at this, and they may not know the complexity of the system, yeah. but they look at it and they go, what the hell is going on? Yeah, if you say to they people that there are individuals who have hundreds of criminal convictions, they don't believe you. Yeah, absolutely. And the good news about it is, and I say this ever the optimist, is that our criminal justice system was not invented last month by the Federal Department of Justice in Ottawa. Okay, it's been around for centuries. It's part of our culture, and it's not the private preserve of judges and lawyers. It belongs to us, we the people. Yes, sir. Okay, and we can take it back. Yes, sir. And, you know, I'll give you an example of something. That same guy that you were talking about from the United States, in my conversations with him, I learned about something that they did that we hadn't been doing, which was using electronic monitoring to have better supervision and monitoring of offenders. And I learned about that, and I was involved in passing legislation to get that done. Okay, but you know what I didn't do is I didn't arrange to get the funding for the provinces to be able to pay for it. Mm-hmm. And that's a problem. That's, and it's, it's not that expensive, but it is so effective. It's effective in protecting victims. And I tell you, the offenders, I've actually spoken with people yeah. who said, I look at you know the electronic monitoring and I go, ooh, 
If I go to that park and look for kids, I'm going to get caught, so I won't go. You know, Scott, there's something else, though, that I don't, I don't want this segment to end without us talking about this. We only have two minutes left. And there are individuals who are in Canada's prisons, men and women, who really want to change their lives. Yes. Who really, want to, who really want to better their lives, who really want to go on a different track. And I had the opportunity to meet them when I was on an advisory committee for the public safety minister a few years ago. And uh, it was the Corcan program. Yeah, inside yeah. prisons. And they, in, the Corcan program teaches you skills. You actually get a journeyman certificate, not a prison certificate, but an actual provincial journeyman certificate. You work toward that. And if you don't live up to the expectations while you're studying, you're tossed out of the program. You don't get a second chance. And I talked to a number of offenders when I was inside some of these prisons on this Corcan program talking uh, about it to them. They're so committed to changing their lives. And those are people we need to hear from as well. Because they are motivators. I agree with that, and that's what I mean when I say one size does not fit all. Our system, as you know, is actually deliberately focused on defender rehabilitation, which I think, you know, in a, in a sort of a larger view, makes some sense because among the best protection we get is when people yeah. decide not to commit more crime. Buddy, i got to stop you. It's time. Okay, there are many things we need to do, however... For all your listeners, and this should just be the beginning. Keep an eye on this, folks. Four Americans kidnapped in Mexico, two murdered. That's a story that made international headlines over the last number of days. And then the drug cartel, here's the story as it continues, tied up apparently and turned over to police, the members of their cartel responsible for the murders. Meanwhile, three women from Texas who traveled to Mexico to sell clothes at a flea market, they've gone missing now. And uh, the former deputy director of the FBI has said, Tom Fuentes, I think is his name, has uh, said that nowhere in Mexico is safe from cartels. While you're on the highway, you're vulnerable. And yet millions of Canadians, well, I don't know if it's millions, but many Canadians continue to flock to Mexico for inexpensive vacations in the sunshine. We're joined by Ian Grillo, journalist who lives in Mexico, reports on the cartels. Just looking at Ian's Twitter feed, at Ian Grillo, that's at I-O-A-N-G-R-I-L-L-O, journalist based in Mexico, focused on crime and drugs, police and gangster politics, author of the El Narco Trilogy, and uh, Ian's book, which is about to go paperback is Blood Gun Money, which is an incredible read. It's all about how the, the, the guns that make their way from the United States to Mexico and the cartels. Ian, good to talk to you. How are you? Yeah, good, thank you. How are you doing, Roy? Excellent. Uh, I'm looking forward to, uh, again, reading your book. I, I read it online. You were kind enough to send me a PDF, and I, I'm going to get the, uh, the, the paperback, so I have it in my collection. Before I talk, talk to you about what's going on now and ask you the questions about what's been going on over the last number of days, in, in Mexico, you also have um, uh, reports that you make available to uh, people who subscribe to your to your service, and it's free. The, the The one that I want to ask you about. Let's start with this. You headlined it. So is Mexico a narco state? Is it Ian? Uh, um, it could well be argued that it is. Um, if you look at these definitions of what a narco state is, in that large parts of the state are taken over by drug traffickers and working with drug traffickers. 
However, um, I do say that I don't like to, as a journalist, throw this around too much because like any government, like the Canadian government, American government or anywhere else, a government's got many sides and does many things. Instead, in Mexico, you have a health service, which, you know, works daily to try and look after you know millions of people. You have school teachers. Uh, you have all the other parts of the states which are working and you have these very venomous drug cartels and organized crime which have like taken over parts of the state so i think that the challenge is how can you try and uh if you think of it like a forest that some of the trees have got this very noxious weed around them how do you try and take away that weed from those trees without burning down the whole forest yeah fair fair statement so let's let's get to the stories that the world has been concentrating on over the last uh, week to two weeks what do we know for sure about the kidnapping of the four americans and the murders of the two of them in matamoros so, yeah, these, these four Americans uh, from South Carolina went down to uh, Matamoros, and one of them, the, this woman, had an appointment for a kind of liposuction type treatment. Um, now, they, other ones, did have criminal records, uh, you know, including for drugs uh, in South Carolina, but we don't have any evidence that was connected to the attack on them. So, they went down in a bit late, drove into Matamoros for, over the border from Brownsville. Uh, when they came under attack from gunmen, which we believed are from the Gulf Cartel, a faction of the Gulf Cartel, which is a major drug trafficking uh, faction which controls this part of Mexico. Now, the, the time this happened, there's been various shootouts happening in the city. Uh, and in fact, schools were then closed for the afternoon sessions because of these shootouts erupting. There's been sporadic shootouts in this area. A lot, there's a lot of infighting among this cartel and different things. They came under attack apparently by mistake it seems they came under attack were fired on were shot and then were taken to various safe houses uh this became an international news story both with the president of mexico and the united states talking about it and so uh, you know a few days later they were found uh, it seems likely the cartel kind of handed them in um like you know allowed them to be found uh, and then handed in some of these People it said were the ones who committed this 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 thing. And I said, "Oh, we know, we're sorry about this." They've had a statement. We're sorry about this. Here, are the guys who did it, take them, and two of them had been shot dead, and two of them were still alive. How unusual is it for cartels to behave in this manner to turn over members of their own organization in a case like this? And uh, did they do it? Do you think primarily because of fear of American retribution? So, I mean, like, you know, I spent 22 years covering the, the actions of cartels and, and, and dealing with this, and you, you realize it's a very strange logic they live under. Um, and it, 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 there's, there's certainly history of, the, of them doing this. So there was the time when they, um, some cartel members shot dead uh, a, a member of the uh, ICE, uh, Immigration Customs Enforcement in Mexico, in San Luis Potosí State, in 2011, and they, and they handed in some of the guys who did that. Um, there was the case when this Archbishop of Guadalajara was shot dead, supposedly as an accident, uh, in 1993, and they they handed over um, some of the guys who did that. So there was, there was a, definitely a history of this. Um, I think they 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 realised you know there's you know, they they do make mistakes and will sometimes say oh sorry that was a mistake <laughs> and you know here they hear the guys but also they. They understand the consequences, the pressure from the United States and the pressure from the Mexican government acting on behalf of the United States. Like how many of these people are they going to arrest? How much of their operations are they going to hurt? How many of their guys on the U.S. side are they going to arrest? 
as a result of this action. Tom Fuentes, uh, the former assistant director of the FBI, quoted as saying that nowhere in Mexico is safe from the cartels. His direct quote is, while you're on the highways, you're vulnerable. Uh, I I imagine this is because, and I've heard about this, uh, toll collecting by cartel members. Is, Is he correct or is that an overstatement? I don't think it. I think it's an overstatement. I think. I think the thing is, and it's difficult. And and you know, I, I work on this as a journalist in every state in Mexico. Uh, I also work uh, giving some uh, advice to companies working in Mexico about security situations. And it is difficult to gauge sometimes these levels of danger. But I'll give an example of what this contrast is. Mexico City itself, where I live, if you look at murders per capita, actually has less than many U.S. cities. Not only less. In the very violent U.S. cities like Baltimore, Maryland, uh, or the south side of Chicago, but also less than some cities, you know, like Houston, Dallas, uh, even Portland, Oregon. Um, so, so it's kind of um, Mexico City's got. It's still not safe. There's still a reasonable number of murders here, but it's 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 kind of level of you know dealing with an urban environment. The holiday resorts you mentioned in your intro that many Canadians do go to, generally they're they're, they're probably safer than than the many American cities. There have been incidents, again, in these places, but you can still generally go and most people are going to be okay there. Now, when you say that there are some states which really I would not advise people to go to, um, including Matamoros, including the state of Tamaulipas, where these people were killed, I wouldn't advise Americans to go there uh, for tourism or medical tourism, maybe for for business if it's important. Um, uh, But there are, indeed, in parts of Mexico, there are highways where there are cartels operating, and and you know, so we do every state in Mexico and continue going around these very very difficult areas. And you do see gunmen openly around some of these areas, openly stopping people, asking for ID, and controlling these places. Okay, I have to ask you this question before we get into uh, into the book, uh, Ian. Are you ever concerned for your own safety, doing what you do, reporting on what you report? I mean, I think anybody doing this, uh, you know, is, and and of course, I mean, you know, particularly in the field uh, when you're in these places and you're seeing guys with AK-47s and grenade launchers and that kind of thing. Uh, and, you know, sometimes even if you're not targeted specifically, but there can be shootouts, you could be hit by a stray bullet. As someone was, in fact, there was a Mexican woman hit by a stray bullet in this latest kidnapping of, of the Americans. Uh, and also dealing with some of these people, I deal with some of the high-level uh, traffickers and, and and various people that I interview, and you know, and, and dealing with them. But I, at the same time, I do think it is a, a good story and a worthwhile story to cover. I think it's a story of big significance, not only to understanding Mexico, but to really understanding what's happening in many countries in the 21st century. Because the issue of organized crime morphing into paramilitary groups, morphing into a kind of uh, weird hybrid of crime and war is a major issue that we face in the 21st century. Yeah, we're seeing that. You're right. We're seeing that around the world. Now, uh, Blood Gun Money, your book declares America, the United States, is where the cartels obtain their guns. Remind us of how widespread the network is in the United States, which provides guns to the Mexican cartels and who you've talked to about this. Yeah, sure. So the the Mexican uh, cartel network stretch across the entire United States and into Canada. for the distribution of drugs uh, and uh, you know this is a huge network which which has been moving uh, billions of dollars worth of drugs uh, every year for, for decades now uh, and at the same time as drugs are going north then money is coming south and also guns are going south so this is not um, only a few guns we're talking about hundreds of thousands of guns every year 
Um, you know, one of the favorites of the cartels, they like uh, AR-15s and AK-47s, which they'll buy in the United States, often convert them to fully automatic. They also like bigger guns that can fire 50 caliber bullets, you know, the the uh, uh, the, the Barretts and these kind of things, which you can buy in uh, Arizona for like $9,000 and then some parts of Mexico sell for $45,000. So quite a big markup. You see those used in fights against Mexican soldiers. There's one video in which you see the cartel gunman firing a 50 cal and blowing a soldier's leg off. Now, in terms of talking, I've talked right across the board to uh, gun traffickers themselves, both in prison uh, and outside, to ATF agents, to people in the gun industry, to, to advocates of this, and to all kinds of people in the trade and gone right to the gun factories and right across spent four years in this investigation. Can the uh, can the cartels be disarmed by the state, by the federal government in Mexico? Uh, because we understand that, I, I don't know if it's many, but I've heard that many of the gunmen who operate and work for the cartels are former military. Some of them certainly are former military. There's people you know, who are former military from the Mexican army and from some other militaries, uh, the Colombian military, the Guatemalan military, and the U.S. military. You find people here in Mexico. Um I think it's a question of, of of you have to improve the situation. To say that you, the, the cartels or the, or the you know the criminals can be completely disarmed, uh, I don't think they can. The same way that you know criminals have guns in Canada and criminals have guns in the UK, even though there's there's a lot less guns in our place. The thing is to try and change the situation so it's not really like right now a kind of hybrid of war, but more of a regular criminal situation. So how can you reduce? the power of these cartels? How can you make them into more regular gangs and criminals and traffickers? Uh, and it's very hard to do that with this flow of weaponry happening right now when you have such an enormous supply of firearms. And the argument's made, well, if they don't buy them from the US, they're going to buy them from the Chinese or from the Russians or somewhere else. Um, but it's like, you know, you've got to try and make it more difficult and put the prices up. And right now, um, you know, they simply have such an abundance of weapons that they can use these guns and then often sell the guns cheap onto the street. So you get guns that are used in crime, sold cheap on the street, and then regular small-time criminals have guns, and there's more violence being perpetuated that way. Uh, also, they have a, a, a you know, seemingly everlasting supply of bullets, and I've been in some of these murder scenes where they won't only, you know, they'll fire 500 bullets at their target. They won't only kill the people they're after, they'll kill the woman in the car behind, the guy selling tacos on the side of the street. So, so it's really a question, I think, of trying to reduce the level of damage uh, and, and try to allow the Mexican state to really get a grip on this. Now, another problem is the Mexican state itself suffers from horrific corruption, as I talked about the kind of narco state thing. So you also have to have simultaneously a fight against the corruption in the Mexican state. But again, when the Mexican state's being outgunned, when soldiers are being outgunned, then they're more likely to take money from the cartels. Yeah, for sure. Blood Gun Money is uh, the title of uh, Ian Grillo's book. The abduction of the four Americans and the killing of two of them and the disappearance of the three women from uh, from Texas who crossed into Mexico to a flea market to sell clothing, apparently. They've now disappeared. Is Does this signal a change in, in operations for the cartels, or are those just um, unusual incidents? I mean, this has been happening for a long time, and you know, this you know, has got news and has got onto the... Uh, you know, into the news media, but these incidents have been happening for, you know, for, for, for many years. There's been Americans who have been killed in Mexico. There's been Canadians. There's been uh, uh, Brits uh, and, and so forth. A, a friend of a friend, a British guy, was, was shot dead in front of his daughter um, in, 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 you know, last year. 
So this has been happening for a long time. The disappearance of, of Mexicans has been, you know, huge numbers. You've got tens of thousands of Mexicans who've been disappeared. So it's not really new. I think it's the media grabbing some attention to some of these incidents. And I think it's some statements being made by certain American politicians who are saying, well, this is how bad this is. We need to use the U.S. Army against the cartels. Um, now, my issue with that is, is not, you know, is really what are you going to achieve by using the U.S. Army against the cartels? Um, I mean, you could have success in an operation. You could go in there and, you know, find out and locate a cartel training camp or, or a cartel base and go in there and kill them. But this is a very, very big thing. You've got hundreds of thousands of cartel operatives, probably millions in Mexico living related to this. And and so you really need some big structural things to try and you know change this this, right. this thing. And just a few shootouts is not gonna it's not gonna deal with the cartels. Okay. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to the Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.